Good evening. Um, we'll be turning to 2 Kings chapter 8 this morning. If you have a Bible, 2 Kings chapter 8. And um, I would ask for your patience with me tonight uh, because I'll be preaching out of the King James Version, which is the version I am most used to, and I make less mistakes if I'm preaching through a Bible that I'm more comfortable with. So uh, I know that the ESV is your normal pew Bible, but if you would uh, let me just uh, preach it in uh, King James, I might be, be able to do a better job. <laughs> okay, so Second Kings chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 1. Then spake Elisha unto the woman, whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wherever so thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose, and did after the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household, and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines. And she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers, and all the fruits of the field, since the day that she left the land, even until now. Um, so a little background about me, I, uh, I used to be a musician, and I went to music school. Uh, in music school, one of the classes you have to take is called orchestration. And in orchestration, you learn how to assign the melodies and the harmonies and the rhythms to different instruments and different combinations of instruments of the orchestra. Um, and the music of an orchestra is special. The music of an orchestra enraptures us because of all of the different tone colors that are present there in all the different instruments. If you consider the fact that an orchestra has 25 different kinds of instruments, that's a lot of different tone colors for uh, the music to use and also many different kinds of combinations that you can use uh, in orchestration. Um, to give you an example, you might have heard Ode to Joy by Beethoven played on a piano. Uh, and it's wonderful, it sounds fine. But then when you put it in front of a full orchestra and an entire choir, then it takes you to a whole other level of majesty. Um, and that's the way it is with orchestration. It's an art form. Um, it's just as much of an art form as like painting or something. Uh, but God is the greatest orchestrator of all time. 
Now, he doesn't orchestrate instruments, but he does orchestrate circumstances. He takes an infinite amount of circumstances and brings them together and orchestrates them into a work of art, and that is called his divine providence. And just like with uh, 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 Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, it would be much more fun and meaningful to experience it than to have someone describe it to you. And for that reason, uh, I would like us to try to take on the perspective of this woman in our passage today. Uh, This poor woman uh, is uh, from the the city of Shunem, um, and she's been through a lot. And I think we can experience this together if we kind of look at this from her perspective today. What is going on in this story from her perspective? Uh, So, first of all, you notice that in this passage, you, the Shunammite woman, you obey God to your hurt. You obey God even though it causes you suffering. Look at verse 1. Then spake Elisha unto the woman, whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou in thine household, and sojourn wherever thou canst sojourn, for the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years." And the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Okay, now once again, imagine you're this woman. And remember, her story begins back in 2 Kings chapter 4. And there we learn that you have this very close relationship with Elisha, the prophet. Back in chapter 4, you had your husband build an extra room onto your house for Elisha to stay and all of, all of his many journeys through your town. And you did this without being asked, uh, from the goodness of your heart, um, and in a sense, obeying God's commandments, like the one he says in De- Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 14, which says, Thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son, and thy daughter, and thy manservant, and thy maidservant, and the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow that are within thy gates. So God's word is directing her in what her hospitality should look like. What are her duties? And now you remember how you were barren at that time, and your husband was old, and you had no children. But Elisha bestowed a gift upon you, like he has done for many biblical heroines in the past. God gave her a gift, just like he did with Sarah and Rebecca and Hannah. He gave you a son, and you love that son of yours for the special little boy that he is. But he suffered a heat stroke and died in your arms. So you rush to Elijah. He is the prophet that promised you this child. And what does he do? He brings the child back to life. Again, this all happens back in chapter 4. And then eventually Elisha warns you to depart for the land uh, of the Philistines because the land of Israel was about to be afflicted by a seven-year drought. Even worse than the 
the drought and the famine that afflicted Israel in the days of Elijah, for that was only three and a half years. This is going to be worse. It's going to be seven years of famine, all because those kings refuse to worship Jehovah. And you obey the word of the prophet, and you take your family to the land of the idolatrous Philistines in obedience to God's word. You hate to leave the relative security of your life. You will have to leave your farm. And in Shunem, you were considered a great woman, and you had many of your fellow believing faithful friends. And in fact, in Shunem, you used to worship with Elisha himself. You had a great life in Shunem. And even though this will cause you great suffering, you leave your people behind and move to the land of the Philistines where they worship a devil named Dagon. And you will be all alone among your enemies without your farm and without your livelihood. You make yourself vulnerable through obedience to the word of God. But what you don't see in your loneliness as you're sitting there in, in, in the land of the Philistines, in your poverty, in your loneliness, is you don't see the heavenly orchestration that God is preparing behind your back. Let's look how the Lord orchestrates these royal circumstances in our passage. Because after the seven years pass, you return to Samaria. Look at verse 3. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. Now, it appears that during this time your husband has died. Otherwise, your husband would probably be the one going to the king. It was really uncommon that the, uh, a woman would be appearing before the king for these kinds of affairs. Uh, but, so that would mean you are a widow. You have your son with you. But in the ancient Near East, widows did not have much favor in the world. They were extremely vulnerable. And that is why God's law repeatedly forbids the oppression of widows because they are so vulnerable. Now, of course, the king of Israel, he doesn't care about God's law one whit. But you do, and you know that Elisha does. And when you arrive in Shunem, you find your farm is occupied by others who don't apparently just give it back to you. It's been seven years, it's theirs now. They consider it their own. But you also know that God's law protects the inheritance of faithful Israelites. Even widows have a right to keep their inheritance in their own family so that it gets passed down to their own sons. According to Deuteronomy chapter 15, every seven years, property ownership reverted back to its original assigned family, regardless of what had transpired in that time. Also, there's case law from Joshua 17 that women could not be excluded from their inheritance just because they're women. Now, once again, does the king of Israel care about God's law? No. But you do. Elisha does. You know that God does. Therefore, you come boldly to the throne of the king to sue for the farm that is rightfully yours, even though Poor widows enjoy very little honor in the eyes of the king. 
And probably the general public discouraged you from approaching the king, saying that you wouldn't get very far with the king. In fact, it might turn out worse. Yet you trust in the law of God and in the words of his prophet. So the Lord prepares the instruments of his orchestra in anticipation of your faithful obedience. Okay, look at verse 4. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha has done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. Now, the king would always hold court in the city gates. That's where these things would transpire. So here he is at the city gate, and the king sees Gehazi. And he recognizes it, because Gehazi was uh, the servant of the great Elisha, the prophet. And he invites Gehazi to come over, and they're conversing, and uh, he's fascinated by the way God orchestrates the events of history and stories about God's people, but he does not love God or trust God personally. And I'm sure you probably know that type of person. You know that kind of person they're talking about here, someone who burns to hear of the miraculous stories of things like this Shunammite woman. Um, but deep down in his heart, this king wanted nothing really to do with the love of Jehovah, or trust, or faith. So anyway, there at the gate, he's talking to Gehazi, and you're waiting patiently for your turn to converse. Now, the things that the king wants to know are the things that the king doesn't already know. There are some miracles of Elisha that the king would have already known about, like... Um, the, the, uh, the healing of uh, the Syrian general Naaman, for one thing, um, because that, that actually happened in the presence of the king. Um, but there's a lot of things that Elisha has done that you don't know about, like the floating axe head. You remember that story about the axe head that floated in the Jordan River? The king wasn't anywhere around. That was just a bunch of prophets. Or when he fed hundreds of people with a few loaves of bread, again, that was kind of in private. Um, so he wants to know more. And one of the things he doesn't know about is um, what Lysha had done for this woman in giving her a child in her barrenness, and then when the child died, resurrecting that child back to life. Now the king does not worship God, but he enjoys hearing about the miracles of God. And finally, Gehazi sees the woman. And you can tell by the sound of his voice here, by, the, by what he says, He's like, that's her. We're, this woman we're talking about, that's her. That's the very boy who was born in her barrenness and Elisha brought back to life. And the king, being all the more excited by his extraordinary conversation with Gehazi, calls you forward and asks you and your son the nature of your petition. Is this true? Is what God has done in you, is that true? And as you talk to the king in the gate, a vulnerable single mother that you are, you remember an offer that Elisha had made to you years 
ago. Because back in chapter 4, Elisha had spoken to you through Gehazi, saying, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king? He's saying, look, I've got some clout. I'm Elisha. You need to talk to the king about anything? I can get you an audience with the king. And she says, or you say, that you don't need any help. You have everything that you need. You dwell among your own people. You have the farm, and you have your family, and you have your faithful friends, and you decline. But years later, here you are, after bearing a son, losing that son, having the son return to you, losing your farm, losing your husband, when you actually do need the king's ear, Elisha somehow brings that about. You're in front of the king. So you start to hear the heavenly orchestra start tuning up and singing because it's about to get loud with God's providence. And look what happens. You reap the double portion of God's providence. Look at verse 6. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since that day that she left the land even until now. So the king restores to you your legal right to your farm. When it says in verse 3 and in verse 5 that the woman cried to the king, that's a, that's a phrase that means she filed suit. She is going through the legal process, through the, through the court, as it were, to get legal possession of her property. Um, so she's, get going, she's trying to get legal possession of her property, and when the king then restores her her land, he's restoring it. Legally, this is now legally your land. And since the farm is now legally yours, and that makes those people who are, remain on your farm, they're now trespassers. But right to possession is not the same thing as actual possession, right? So she could be, have the land could legally be hers, but there may be, it may be hard to actually take possession of it. So what does the king do? He sends a representative to assist you in taking legal and actual possession of your farm. He said, we uh, we know that someone was working the farm uh, while she was gone, and it might not be easy, because remember, you're a widow to just boot somebody off the land that's been there for seven years. But the king has found so much favor with you that he sends the sheriff with you to make sure you don't have any problem taking actual possession of that land. But the sheriff does not just help you take possession of your land. He goes much farther. The king has him provide you with even more than what you are legally entitled to. Because if you look again at verse 6, It says, when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed unto a certain officer, saying, restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land even until now. Not only do you get your farm back, but you receive seven years worth of production. This is an overly abundant gift, considering that you weren't even the one working the farm during those seven years. This is like the, or, the Lord orchestrating it so that, 
the Egyptian people gave the Israelites all their precious jewels before he sent them out on the Exodus. Or it's like Job receiving a double portion of everything that he lost at the beginning of his affliction. This is an overabundance. And at this point, God's magnificent symphony has reached its climax. All these things fall out in your favor because God was orchestrating circumstances behind your back. Just a simple conversation between the king and Gehazi. And God loves orchestrating circumstances in the lives of his people because he is an artist. He is an artist with his providence. He loves expressing himself through his providence. The psalm says, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. The Lord is beautiful. His works are beautiful. Yet this beautiful symphony which blessed you, unfortunately, concluded almost as quickly as it started. Because a few years later, you die. And your son dies. Elisha dies. The king dies. Everybody dies. So all of the God's wonderful orchestrations of providence in this life are only temporary. But they have lasting value in that they point us to God's final work of art. Because all of history is a great crescendo toward God's ultimate coda, the return of Jesus Christ. And if you would turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and look in verse 51. All of history is a great crescendo toward God's ultimate goal here, the return of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 51... The Apostle Paul says these words, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption has taken on incorruption, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is the victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is the heavenly finale. As unlikely as it sounds, and as much as it is scoffed at by God's enemies, God shall orchestrate one final recapitulation of his big work of art here. And we're all going to get changed on that day. This corruptible body that we have now will put on an incorruptible body. This mortal body that we have now will be put on an immortal body. 
Christ will then swallow up death in victory. So God is in the process right now of orchestrating a final requiem, the death of death itself. God will do so with Christ as his principal instrument, sanctifying his people with his own obedience and holiness that they sin no more. No more sin means no more death. And again, as unlikely or as improbable as this sounds, God is even now orchestrating this event that he decreed from before the world began. So what can we learn from all of this? Let me give you some applications. First of all, prepare yourself to see and hear the glory of God's orchestration in providence. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 once again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Doesn't this verse sound a lot like the Shunammite woman? She steadfastly cared for her family and Elisha. She obeyed the warning of Elisha even to her hurt. But when it was time to return, she would not be moved from what was right. That farm was rightfully hers by God's law, and it was rightfully her son's. She could not be swayed from seeking that which was right for herself, but especially her only heir, the boy that God had given her. And through her steadfast and immovable labor in the Lord, she witnessed the great orchestration of God in, in her life. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that we all prepare ourselves to see God's orchestration when we steadfastly and unmovedly labor in the name of Christ. Regardless of how circumstances appear, and giving no heed to the pessimism of people in the world, or the frightening visage of those who are in worldly authority, prepare yourself with steadfastness and immovability in Christ, and you will see it. Also, prepare yourself by becoming vulnerable, because God likes to work his wonderful providence in the lives of of the vulnerable. Vulnerability is a virtue. The disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive, just like the Shunammite woman did, one such little child in my name receiveth me. There's really only one thing more vulnerable than a widow, and that's a baby, a child. Christ says those who humble themselves to such levels of vulnerability are in fact greatest in his kingdom. Now the world will tell you something different. The world will tell you that the greatest are those who are not vulnerable. 
those who are independent, those who are like Clint Eastwood in every Clint Eastwood movie you've ever seen. But the Lord wants us to depend upon him like little children depend upon daddy. Like the way the Shunammite woman depended on Elisha. Her vulnerability allowed her to witness the great orchestration of God. Then you must prepare yourself by actually watching, hearing, being aware. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away, the Lord said. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch, and pray, for ye know not when the time, come, the time is. For the Son of Man is a man taking a far journey, who has left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cockcrowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch." That great finale of God could happen, and you don't want to sleep through it. You have to watch for it through obedience, through hard work. Do not be like the apostles who fell asleep while Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Don't be like those brides who let their lamps run out of oil before the return of the bridegroom. Keep on obeying, keep on laboring, knowing that like the Shunammite woman, your labor shall not be in vain. If you watch for it, you're going to see it. And then prepare yourself by trusting that the Lord works on your behalf. The Lord works on behalf of you. You personally. This is not just some theoretical concept. This is personal. He works for you. Nothing seems so unlikely as Christ returning from heaven in bodily form with his angels and the blaring of trumpets and the dead raising from the graves to receive their glorified body and sin and death in final defeat. This all sounds very crazy and out of the question. Therefore, meditate on how God has orchestrated circumstances in the life of this Shunammite woman. Meditate on the same thing concerning many other vulnerable people in the Bible, where God has done the same thing. Meditate on God's mysterious providence in the lives of your friends, the people that you know. But most of all, meditate on what God does for you in his providence, the miracles that he has worked for you, the great orchestrations of your own life. And with those meditations, you can stand and trust in something as unbelievable as the return of Christ. And then lastly, soften your hearts and soften other people's hearts by speaking up about the glorious works of Christ. In our passage that we read this morning, it says, The king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And through that conversation and through Gehazi's praises, God prepared a worldly heart to bless a heavenly person. He turned that king's heart to bless this heavenly person of the woman. And your praises might just do the same for someone else. 
The psalmist says, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. My lips shall praise thee. You never know when your praise will affect someone else's life. But it will always be useful to God. You may not see it, but God will make use of it. Because your joy in the Lord, your joy in the Lord transforms the earth. Isaiah says, For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That's what your praises would do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be with us here in a very special way, using the words of your gospel in a powerful way, in an effectual way, to work on our hearts, that you would break up the fallow ground of our hearts and plant good seed there, that we might bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Lord, as we continue with the service today, we ask that, you would, that everything that we would do and say would be with a joyful heart of praise to you, And that even as we leave this building tonight and we go out in our lives this week, that your praises will be on our lips, that we will be moved by the Holy Spirit to obedience, even to our hurt, to labor in the name of the Lord, even when we don't see the fruit of it. Pray that you would keep us steadfast in the things that you have taught us and the things that you have made us. In Jesus' name, amen.